have you not seen that. My name is Crossing. I'm Wilson. And I'm Charles. And this is a podcast where uh, we admit to movies that we've not seen that are either popular or in the canon. Unpopular. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've had the experience in the past where someone asked me, like, hey, have you seen this movie? You know, it's really interesting. And either, lie. Yeah. Yeah. We all have. To avoid seeming dumb or uncultured, you, you lie and mm-hmm. say that you've seen the movie. Charles, you got to choose the movie this week, and yep. you chose Dr. Strangelove. Yep. Tell us about it. Sure. So, in Dr. Strangelove, Crazed General issues the order for a nuclear strike on Russia, hoping that because there's no turning back on it, that the U.S. will just order a full attack on Russia and uh, annihilate them. You know, the president and all the senior military officials of the U.S. get together to try to figure out this situation. They end up working with Russia um, because the president doesn't want to launch a nuclear war. They work with Russia to shoot down or recall the bombers and almost rectify the situation. But one bomber gets damaged, but still manages to make it through and hit its target. And it's revealed that Russia has built this doomsday device that will trigger as soon as Russia is attacked with nuclear weapons that will basically annihilate all life on Earth with radiation. And they do it as some sort of ultimate deterrent to nuclear war. So they were unable to prevent the nuclear weapon from dropping and the doomsday weapon triggers and everybody is going to die. Yeah, that's the end of the movie. I think it's important to note that the conspiracy that the general ascribes to <laughs> is uh, basically the fluoride conspiracy. Yes. Yeah. It's precious about bodily fluids. Yeah. Infiltrated by communists. What? Yeah, I wasn't sure if it came from this movie or if it was like a real thing no, that is predates, referenced by the pre- movie. Well, it's not a real thing. But it, it is well, like the, the, real the conspiracy, thing. I mean. Yeah. yeah. That part's real. The yeah, fluoride. There, are, there are people that ascribe to the fluoride conspiracy. Yeah. <laughs> to date. Yeah. Like those people still exist. Yeah. Uh, but our teeth. What, yeah, right. What, what did you... Expect out of this movie. That's a good question. This is a good um, question. I, I think with. I had a good idea um, about this movie. Okay. And going into it just because I've being, seen descriptions. Like, I knew that it was a comedy. I knew that the Cold War and nuclear weapons were involved. Um, I guess I didn't really know the rest of the plot. I knew the iconic scene of the dude, like, writing the nuke down. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of knew that, you know, a bomb was going to drop at some <laughs> point. That's Slim Pickens, right? Yes, it is. Yeah, okay. Um, cast to replace Sellers in what would have been his fourth role in this movie. (laughs) Yeah, and I knew that they had a war room because I heard some references to that beforehand. Um, But I guess I didn't know the exact plot or, like, nature of the movie. Did you you find it funny? Did you like it? Yeah, absolutely. I I quite like this movie. Okay, good. Yeah, I I thought it was very funny, very snappily written. Um, It was very, like, tightly paced. yeah, I, I like pretty much everything about the movie. I do wish it was in color, but what can you do? Interesting. Okay. Because I think that that's, a, I mean, that's like one of the more obvious things about the movie is watching it, like that it isn't in color. I feel like generally I I would wish things were in color when they aren't. Yeah. Very large. Okay. Yeah. When did you first see this one, Crossman? When I was a kid. Yeah? For sure, yeah. Did you understand it? Probably not. Okay. Um, but I've always liked this movie. Yeah, I, I saw it in college, and then not, I think I might have only seen it in college. I'm like, not since then. Hmm. Um, so it's been a little while. It was kind of a fresh viewing for me, too. I've, I've seen it many times. Yeah. And it, it holds up. Um, I think, like, all comedies, like, you know, you know the jokes eventually. And mm-hmm. so, like, you're not, like, hysterically laughing. But 
Well, I still like appreciate everything. Yeah, oh, yeah, this movie doesn't really inspire hysterical laughter, even the first time around. There was, um, <laughs> I was laughing pretty hard. Really? Yeah. Good. <laughs> there was one moment that got me. Um, yeah, it'll, it'll come to me. Oh, when the, the um, Doctor Strangelove himself, like, really gets me. Yeah, every yeah. time. Oh, it's yeah. so funny. It's yeah. such a layered comedy. It's so good. That performance is just like outstanding. Yeah, all three of them. Like but, one of the yeah. great. Comedic performances, specifically Doctor Strangelove. One, yeah. Ironically, the Doctor Strangelove character was my least favorite part of the movie. Really, I just I thought <laughs> I thought it was a little too over the top, um, a little too like ridiculously cartoonish for a movie that's already like pretty ridiculous. Like I thought that was a bit too much. It but was I too cheesy. They introduce it so late that it like it just comes out of nowhere. That he's yeah. just been like sitting at the table the whole time. Yeah, and... I saw him and like you know he's on the poster of the movie and everything. So I expected him to have like, a bigger role in the movie considering he's the title character. No, he's in it for like four minutes. But apparently yeah. that's it. Yeah, it, it's a very strange choice yeah. for the movie. Yeah, I think he's <laughs> he's supposed to look like Kissinger, right? Like if you look at like pictures of Kissinger in the 60s, like there's a very similar look, right? Like that, mm. I think that Strangelove is supposed to stand in for Kissinger. And I read one critique that said that Merkin, the president, is supposed to stand in for Adelaide Stevenson, which would also kind of make sense. Uh, like they have a similar, you know, balding patch and like a thin, you know, whiny kind of look to them. Interesting. <laughs> and, but I think that, the, I don't know about that one, but the Kissinger one I think is pretty dead on. I, I would not have jumped to that, but I guess it makes sense. Like. I more just think of him as just like a stand-in for like the CIA in general. It's like the all the Nazis that they recruited before, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. during, and after World War II. Well, and just the way that he's placed within the... This is jumping ahead a little bit, but I do yeah. think it's an important point. Like the way he's placed within the structure of the movie, that like he is this this latent fascism that like has been lurking, in the, literally lurking in the shadows the entire time. And as soon as there's some tragedy that's actually imminent and happening, he pops out and like takes over the movie. Right, like mm -hmm. that that feels like such a perfect metaphor for fascism. It's like, yeah. here we are, capitalism in crisis is fascism, right? Like, whoop, there he is, ready to, ready to hop in and tell everyone that it, it's all about, you know, saving the military, hiding underground, and fucking babes. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's what life should be. And they all love it, right? Like that, I think that was really well done. I, yeah, I <laughs> was not sure if like everything would hold up to today oh, but, but it 100 percent holds up to it's, today it's mm -hmm. like more, it makes more sense today yeah right it's just like a total yeah. libertarian fantasy yeah of like that's exactly what they want to make our weird sex islands and and that's it, it and like and that's it yeah that's all that's all we well they managed to squeeze yeah. in like that commentary but also have the the general respond to it hilariously yes yeah because he talks about the mind shaft gap like that was so funny because <laughs> they've yeah. been talking about like the doomsday weapon gap and now yeah. like you know, they're they're all going to be blown to smithereens. And all he cares about is still outpacing the Soviets in in like reproduction, in like, right? Because that that language was present during like the nineteen sixty election, yeah. where Kennedy would talk about the missile gap, and like so that's an act, actual verbiage that was used at the time, or the right. space race, yeah. or the space race, yeah. yeah. Um, so well, it, I love the notion that like after a hundred years they would like climb out of the mines and then like bomb each other again. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. It's like can we maintain our nuclear. They're gonna have more people after a hundred years, and they emerge from the mines. <laughs> right, exactly because of the mine. The mine. Yeah. <laughs> that was so funny. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the most iconic thing about the film is the end where they're like in the middle of discussing this like very monstrous plan. Yeah, and what was different about it to me this time around is that like when the bombs go off, it's like. Oh, phew, 
humanity is like eliminated here. Yeah. Like it's a <laughs> oh. it's a relief because <laughs> the like their plan to like fix this thing is so monstrous that like the alternative of vaporizing everybody is much better. Right. Yeah. <laughs> these these guys all deserve to die. Right. Yeah. Like we're all better off if they're if they are dead. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, that's true. Um, one of the things I noted on this viewing that I guess we kind of came up already was this like how much sex plays into this movie. Like it, it's so much about a lot more than I remember sexual desire and like masturbation and a little bit of rape at the end there. And I looked into it a little bit, and there's this letter floating around that Kubrick wrote in response to fan mail from some woman somewhere in the country who used the phrase sexual framework to like mm. identify this movie that he wrote it like while this was on its original theatrical run and in a Kubrick's letter he's like you're the only person that has identified this I wish that we could have this conversation like in a national publication somewhere <laughs> alas here we are yeah. <laughs> good read <laughs> like, that was <laughs> well that. done yeah it, it's right at the beginning of the film too right like, like it he, starts in where the, the general's like having this fling with his girlfriend right and, or, and proceeds to have this <clears> very <throat> funny conversation right from the other room where we just hear her talking. <laughs> and, and Darcy's cast just hollering back and forth yeah. to her. Well, yeah. and it, even before that, you have the Sterling Hayden character who is just like chomping away on a huge phallic cigar and like going on and on about his bodily fluids. It's like, yeah. Undeniable. Well, he didn't start doing that until much later in the movie. But he, he doesn't do what? Like the body fluid stuff until like. Right, but like there's this kind of like. like the cigar is like an undeniably phallic image. Oh, yeah. And then, like, the same guy later on is worried about his bodily fluids. And then he talks about, like, which, he's in sexual congress with a woman and he, like, denies her his essence. Which is, like, part of the, like, alt-right ideology. Oh, yeah. Where it's, like, you, like, conserve yourself. It's like a battery theory. Right. It's, it's you know, completely devoid of any real science or intelligence. But, yeah. like it, they, It's yeah. funny that he, like, says that he doesn't want to, like essentially give women his bodily fluids, but he still has to emphasize that he still does have sex. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. It's a, it doesn't impugn his, his manliness or his ability to yeah. please. Yeah, because there's this weird, like, undercurrent in all right of, like, incel and cel- celibacy and stuff like this. And then it seems, like, to be spot on yeah, with it, what's it, happening here. This, this deep fear of sexual inadequacy. Right? Yeah. Like, it's this, like, a, a, an intimacy issue writ large. Uh, across the entire movement, and like it seems like Kubrick has identified that that is so much of what motivates conservatism and right wing thought is just fear, period, and specifically sexual fear. And here we are. If you once you start looking for it, it is everywhere in this movie. It's all over the place. I mean, yeah. I mean, you could argue that that's where all of men's egos come from, and yeah. that's what everybody's fighting over in the Cold War, right? And right, it, right. And it inspires all the conflict here. Yeah, like, you, you you can go back to Pynchon with that. Like, he had the great metaphor of, like, missiles as penises, right? <laughs> and, like, he t- takes that as far as it can really go, but it's here, too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, he's literally riding the missile down to penetrate Russian soil and, you know, overtake them, right? Like, it's undeniable. Yeah. So yeah, I I found that that theme was was really quite present throughout uh, in this viewing of the movie. Yeah, and they say something about like the Russian prime minister being a man as well because he's like too busy with a woman, right? Trying to desperately reach him because a nuclear strike is incoming. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like partying. heavily implied that he's at a like a prostitution den, right? Yeah, yeah. and that's it's like Dimitri, we have a little problem, <laughs> yeah, right? And the ineffectual president is cast as like. Effeminate, and we. Well, he's like a technocratic, like dark. 
Right. Way, yeah, he's, he's just like, kind of a wiener. Yeah. He's, he's a millhouse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's also, what's interesting, he's, he's not very, like, uh, kingly. He's just sort no. of, like, the... I'm just one of the nerds that's like at the table. Well, he, if anything, yeah. he's seated a little lower yeah. than a lot of the people around him. He's, yeah, he's, he's like smaller. He's picked as smaller and shorter. And yeah, I wonder why. Especially because so much of his yeah. acting is opposite George C. Scott, who's this like big, burly, bombastic character and presence um, in this movie and everything else that he's in. <laughs> so much of the movie is on the telephone. Yeah. Where it's, it's one side of a telephone conversation. And a lot of the humor like comes from that. Like yes. the the reactions of to whatever you assume is happening on the other end is always like really funny. Yeah, the one that got me here was when um, Sellers is his British officer character and he's trying to have the conversation, the payphone. Like that, <laughs> that one got me. Yeah. And they won't let him call to they save the world because he doesn't, he have, doesn't have a dime or whatever it yeah. is. He can't find any more money for the, the payphone. Uh, like that one got me pretty good and like him playing off just probably nobody on the other side of that phone. Okay. really well done that whole dynamic was great where the one guy was like well if this doesn't work out you need to take this up with the coca-cola company, <laughs> Coca-Cola company. <laughs> like he's just really worried about the destruction of uh, private property coke's property specifically yeah. yeah just like that's what we should be concerned about right now yeah is what coca-cola thinks um but yeah in the sellers he, i mean he famously plays three roles here um, he's I the, actually did not know that. And really? I didn't realize until I read about the movie afterward because they did a very good job. They make him up really well. Yeah, the makeup was very good. Uh, he has different hair in all mm-hmm. the roles and that makes it less obvious. Sometimes and he has I, a mustache. He has a different just, accent in every role too. Yeah, he does a very good accent in each of them. <clears throat> um, and like, I guess I'm just not that familiar with Peter Sellers in general, so I didn't recognize his like facial structure and so sure. it was less obvious to me. Yeah, and they do something to conceal that as well. Like it's not obvious that who yeah. he's supposed to be. So maybe, yeah, if you don't know going in, you're not going to spot it. Um, but yeah, he was initially supposed to play four roles. He was supposed to be the, the Slim Pickens character. But apparently he injured and then re-injured his ankle just prior to production. Oh, man. So the insurance company wouldn't let him play any roles that required like physical any kind of physicality. So he had to drop that one and just do the other three where he's mostly like... He actually standing. even says that as the... The air, the British guy. Oh, he's yeah. like, he, like he says he has like a bum leg. Oh yeah, yeah, you're right. I yeah. wonder if that was. He's like on the couch and he's okay. like, I, I can't. Yeah, help well, you. like the the general like wants him to get up and help him load the machine gun. Right? Yeah, like, yeah I can't <laughs> yeah, do that. Yeah. My legs hurt. <laughs> got What did he says something about a string? Like he tore a string. Yeah, he's yeah. like a stringy leg or something. <laughs> I think he means that he like tore his ACL. You're right, right, right yeah. exactly. Um, now, yeah, you're right. I wonder if that is a reference to his his real life injury. That would make sense. Yeah, because there is a surprising amount of in, improvisation in this movie. Is uh, yeah, like especially like for Kubrick, because that's like not really his mo. Yeah. Um, the bit towards the end when George C. Scott falls over, like kind of out of nowhere. Oh yeah. He just actually fell over. Like, I wasn't about that. It yeah. wasn't yeah. in the script. He just slipped and fell, and he like sold it so well that they kept it in the final cut, <laughs> and like that's so great. I don't know how they held it together with Doctor Strangelove too. Like to have everybody else just like stay cool while he's yeah. like being. Well, yeah. I wonder Strangelove how many takes it so. Fun. Yeah. Yeah, like how many yeah. takes was that? Especially when he has the, um, I forget the condition that it's called, but it's like. Uh, it's not a real thing. Yeah, it is. Um, okay. It's like it's like a possessed hand, like thing. It's it's a men- it's a it's, it's a neurological issue. Okay. Yeah. Wow, I thought um, that was made up. Um, yeah. It's actually come up in a few movies. Right, that's why uh, I thought it was made up. I've only seen it. No, I think I'm pretty sure it's a real condition. I feel like this I is something Jim Carrey has done. What? I feel like this is something Jim Carrey has done. Probably, like he's such a physical actor, it would make sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
Um, or at least referenced, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, when he can't stop, like, Throwing up the highlighter yeah, salute. Yeah, the highlighter <laughs> was so funny. Well, and he keeps <laughs> slipping into calling the president my fear. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. If okay. they keep listening to him, <clears throat> yeah. it's yes. peculiar. Well, they, if anything, he starts doing that stuff and they become more invested, right? Like, as soon as he starts, like, delivering more Nazi bits, they're like, oh, yeah, this guy has some good ideas. Let's let's do what he says, uh, which is, you know, bananas. Uh, yeah, so, I, I, yeah, he's great here in every part. Yeah. Right? Like, he... It, it, it's one of the yeah. three all-time great comedic performances. All <laughs> uh, oh, right. Yeah. Um, Going back to earlier, actually, um, my favorite scene um, was actually when the general is saying he's like giving the bit about how we have to strike first, mm-hmm. and we might just take some losses or whatever, and you know, get our hair tussled or whatever he says, right? Yeah. <laughs> and he gives this whole thing about how it's absolutely necessary to strike first, um, and the president like just bats him down like immediately. He's like, "This is." Um, the work of one man and not national policy, and we will not strike first or something. Right. And there are, there are other alternatives, and yeah. he just cuts it off right there. <laughs> I just thought it was funny, so funny how, like, how matter of fact his response was, how sudden the president's response was. There's right. something about the timing there. Well, and, yeah. and that it's just it's entirely contradictory to what the Sterling Hagen characters plan was yeah right? exactly so like <laughs> that that's also part of it too the general made this whole hubbub about how he's orchestrating this hand. situation yeah. um to force their hand and like his plan will succeed no matter what because they can't do anything else now and the president shoots that down in one <laughs> sentence like the first 30 minutes of the movie it's like yeah, yeah i'm not doing that like yeah. well <laughs> so I, that was just such an incredible moment for me yeah i think that the, my if we're, if we're picking favorite moments and there are so many in this movie but mine might be when uh, George C. Scott uh, is talking about whether or not the American pilots can fly in under Russian radar. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and he's just like so stoked that he's like, oh, yeah, our boys are the best. They're going to get in under that radar. Nobody will see them coming. It'll be great. And then, like, there's a moment where he realizes what he's saying is, oh, yeah, they're so great. They're such good pilots that it will lead to the destruction of the earth and yeah. like, the end of everything. And, like, you have this, he has this break. And it reminds me of his performance in Twelve Angry Men, where he realizes that he's contradicting himself towards the end of the movie, and he like is—he's so, he, like his face is just so elastic and so expressive, <laughs> and he's so committed to these performances that yeah. it just—it works every time, and like just the the absolute break is says everything you need to know about that character in that moment. Like he is such an excellent actor. So going back a couple of things. Um, so the condition is called alien hand oh, syndrome. Oh, this is a real thing? Okay. It's alien hand syndrome. And it's also known as Dr. Strangelove syndrome. <laughs> really? Um, it's, it's a condition in which a person experiences their limbs acting seemingly on their own without control over the actions. The term is used to describe a variety of clinical conditions and most commonly affects the left hand. Okay. Was, which one was Strangelove? It was the right hand, I think. Yeah. Okay. I wonder if it's because it's like the non-dominant hand, right? And like people just yeah. use the... I don't know. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I feel like I've read about this where it's like you're um, sometimes if, if you don't have like strong c- connection for whatever reason between like your left and right hemispheres of your brain, uh-huh. your mind isn't able to like process the control 100% of the time of, okay. of your limbs and then you like you can lose control of your left hand. So it doesn't affect you like 100% of the time, but you'll just like grab something out of nowhere and mm. like not know why. Hmm. I honestly yeah. thought this was just what made up like a purely fictional yeah. thing. Yeah. I guess it's like your brain kind of short-circuiting itself. Yeah. Um, there's 
it ha- it comes up in uh, the Evil Dead series because like Ash okay. is affected by this. Like okay. his hand is like possessed by it, and mm-hmm. there's another one. Yeah, I there's... think it's better better off dead or something. Is the one with um? No, no, no. Okay. Um, there's there's another movie um, I'm, that I'm sure where there it's like is. the main plot of the movie. <laughs> yes, no, I know what you're talking about. It's called like Idle Hands. Hands. Idle Hands. That's Idle Hands. It's like a movie. horror comedy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It looks kind of kind of bad. Um, it's it. fine. It's just like a dumb nineties <laughs> like early aughts yeah. film. That's like, what I expected. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so okay. Yeah. I guess I learned something today because I had no idea. That <laughs> yeah. That, that real that was thing. Real. Uh, what do we think of this as a, as a Kubrick movie? Because it does kind of stand apart from a lot of his other stuff. It's in that so it's, different. Yeah. Because yeah, it's about comedy. This yeah. is his only comedy. Yeah. And really, it's his only might be like his only movie with any jokes in it. Right. So much of his other. 2001 had the one joke. The, the toilet joke in 2001, yeah. which is very funny. That is, yeah. a, that is a good joke. There are some like ironic or almost funny elements of like Eyes Wide Shut and right. just like the pathetic nature of like Tom Cruise's character. Right, or like when he but, goes back to the costume shop. Yeah. That moment's But that's still like funny. a very dark and, and film and not a comedy. I, I guess Full Metal Jacket had some dark humor. Uh, yeah. Especially yeah. in the first half. Like, you know, a lot of what the drill instructor says You're is right. pretty funny. Okay, yeah, that's true. You're right. But yeah. the, the, Okay, so I overstated that. But <laughs> this is still the only one that's intended to be a comedy. Yeah, for first. Sure. Right, like that is primarily a comedy. Um, I, I certainly noticed some of Kubrick's uh, visual flair in this movie. Like, it has the same sort of very <clears throat> precise style to it, mm-hmm. uh, as well as some play with camera angles. Like, you know, whenever you see the general, you'd be looking up at him, right? Mm-hmm. And it gave him this sort of intimidating feel, right? And that was very interesting. Was, he, I think he was the only character where you see that camera angle for. I think you might have gotten it with George C. Scott sometimes, but it's most dramatic with the Sterling. Oh yeah, I remember now, because there's times where he's at the desk and you're looking up at him and you see the little binder in front of him that says like, Mega deaths, something or other. Yeah, something about mega deaths. (laughs) Yeah, whatever the hell that is supposed to mean. I think that means like a thousand deaths, yeah. I think so, yeah. Um, But yeah, like you do have some of those like really, I don't know, distancing shots of people's faces. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like when he he doesn't give characters close-ups very often, like just in general. But when he does, it's in this way that makes them look as unhuman as possible. Uh, well, it's still like a very like controlled movie. Mm-hmm. Like everything seems very like very purposeful. Yeah. Like every single shot, and that we really only see like four locations in the movie. Yep. Maybe five. And it have, felt weirdly small scale for a movie yeah. about world annihilation. Yeah, the restraint is just like impressive. Yeah, because we like, have keep it bottled like so tiny. Like, we have the war room. We have the, the the bomber. The bomber itself. The office where Hayden is, and like the exterior of the the officers' quarters. I guess. Yeah, like that's, that's pretty much it. There's like two other scenes. Yeah, there's like a bedroom and one yeah. scene, and, and like, then the hallway. And the, yeah. yeah, and yeah. that, but one, that's like it. One thing I found interesting was there's a few brief scenes of like shootouts mm-hmm. and they're shot in a way that feels a lot like war footage um and i i like that choice um it yeah, it's felt like very slightly immediate. out of focus and like lower fidelity of like everything else and like yeah and it was like very shaky and it's from that like kind of ground-based cameraman perspective yeah so it feels like you're watching the news like like war footage it, it feels news. more realistic it's not like um 
like an expendable style movie where you see like the muzzle flash constantly yeah. and like where the bullets like streamer bullets like and stuff like yeah, that it's just I, like you just hear people firing and then like mayhem off in the distance what i what i liked it about is. it is that yeah. it lends a very like serious air to the actual combat and so mm-hmm. it's like an interesting juxtaposition between the seriousness of the combat and like people dying and it's american shooting at americans versus like how ridiculously cartoonish the general is while he's like holed up in his office, right? And so there's a this giant is, gun. Yeah, and there's this yeah. weird back and forth between those. And it's also like the extremely serious consequences per, that are created by these ridiculous individuals. Right. And then like the next layer, or another observation on that, I guess, is that like that type of war is what all these generals are imagining and like want to return to, right? Like that, this is what these guys are treating everything like, is like this on the ground. You know, you're 50 feet away from your enemy. You, everybody just has like conventional gun. Like that's what they're ready for, and like that's what they are trained for, yeah. and what they actually affirmatively want. Mm-hmm. But what's actually happening is like so far beyond that. Yeah, yeah, the movie, I think, does a good job of like, kind of like not making the obvious like punching down jokes, mm-hmm. um, which would be like pretty easy. Like the aircraft crew are sort of like the normal army guys, mm-hmm. but they're like pretty effective in their jobs like they're able to keep the plane afloat and like they they question the plan at first and they do all like they do all the right checks and that was a funny scene too yeah where yeah. they like triple check the code yeah. yeah and it like zooms in on the code a few times <laughs> yeah. like yep that's it like the, the only like absurdity of what they're doing is that they they do like drop the bomb which is like how could you make that like moral decision right but like otherwise like those guys are like not played for laughs and it would be easy just to be like hey look at these like dumb army guys yeah right I mean, all the dumb people are the ones that are like in charge. Well, the, like, the inco- not just dumb, but incompetent. Incompetent and incredibly yeah. evil. Yeah. yeah, yeah, they're the ones. I did find this yeah. movie to be an interesting like comparison of. Well, it's like a combination of incompetency and hypercompetency that leads yeah. to this terrible situation. Right? Yeah. So, like the leaders um, create this situation through their incompetency, and the soldiers through their competency lead to its inevitability, mm-hmm. uh, just because they've been yeah. designed to be unfailing, essentially, right? Like the the, the pilots are trained extremely well, uh, so they can handle any of these situations. Their plane almost gets down by a missile, and they know how to recover from it. Yep. The planes are built extremely well, so that they can take a missile hit and still keep going and all that, right? And they're willing to sacrifice themselves to yeah. you know, like accomplish the mission. Like yeah. they're. Like they do the things they're supposed to do. Yeah. It's, I mean, yeah. it, it, in that sense, like it calls to mind 2001 again because it's about here's the it, the system can work exactly the way it's supposed to go, but if the goal of the system is something horrible, it shouldn't work. It's bad that it's working, right? So like hell did the stuff that it was programmed to do. Really, like it followed its programming mm-hmm. pretty well. The, the the plane flew the way it was supposed to fly. These guys executed the plan that they were taught to execute, but the people programming hell and the people drafting those plans were evil horrible people and therefore even if you have a a machine that runs perfectly and a plan that's executed well the results are still bad if the foundation of the plan is bad yeah and like and for kubrick to make that point this this director that's so much about precision and making sure everything runs perfectly and making sure that the 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 set is run you know like this machine that he is the king of and treating people like treating actors like pawns right like it's really interesting that he's the one that's making this point at mm. several times in his career yeah i think it also speaks a lot to like how you can like hide very evil actions and like technocratic legislation yeah like the 
they they just have like have so many plans like when they open the safe there's just like a million plans inside the safe and they <laughs> right. and they discuss like how they were passed and like because the president like approved all all the plans right but he doesn't even remember all the plans that he approved mm -hmm. so there's like all these like really technocratic solutions to like this incredibly evil thing and it yeah. becomes like really banal when you just like hide it in the complexity of like all this planning right and that's probably the most pointed critique of the movie it's yeah. really about bureaucracy and it's about bad plans and bad systems and because the the guy who passed those because they, they have that disclaimer at the beginning of the movie about like how this could never happen this is a work of fiction da, 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 da. it's like much bigger than that disclaimer would normally appear it's wrong at the time this movie was made this could absolutely have happened like the plans were in place such that this precise thing could have happened. It, it almost did happen. There was yeah. a Soviet general and their radar systems were going off saying there's an incoming missile strike and he decided not to like launch back. Right. Like, yeah. So the president, yeah, the president that approved those plans the first time around was Eisenhower. Yeah. The, the, like, Were there it, actual plans like this? Yes. Yeah, Eisenhower approved them because well, I like, figured they'd be top secret and so we wouldn't know. Yeah, we, well, we didn't know at the time. <laughs> yeah. And Kennedy came in and found out about him and he was just like, he was stunned. He's like, I can't believe that this is still here. He kept him around anyway. Is, it, is, it, is this all the stuff that like the guy from like A Beautiful Mind came up with, like all the game theory, oh, I don't know about that. stuff? Yeah, I, I don't know if he was if Nash was involved. Because that movie kind of hinges on like he comes up with game theory, and the game theory is that like if if we threaten total annihilation right. between that's a mutually between, assured destruction, that, right? That then nobody thing. will do it because it's an insane thing to do. Yeah, well, I'm sure yeah. that that is. It's related to that because yeah. let's see when was Nash around? It was the fifties, right? Yeah, and he was like an early CIA guy, right? It was Probably. it was like pre CIA before right it was a thing in right. the fifties when they were like doing really, that really been, evil stuff. That, yeah, that would have been yeah. around the Eisenhower era. So yeah. maybe yeah, I don't know, but the, I do know that that disclaimer at the beginning of the movie there was an article about it. Um, it was published in two thousand fourteen. That's basically like yeah, that disclaimer is a lie. This stuff oh, totally man. could have happened because um, the the book that. Kubrick based this on was just told as a straight drama, right? Like based on the same idea, because like it was meant to be horrifying, and like as Kubrick was adapting it, he realized that there's no way to tell this story without it just <laughs> without treating it as an absurdity. Um, and so, like with The Shining, he adapted the the material. Yeah, um, and 2001 for that matter. Uh, but yeah, like that that thing is real. Um, there was another movie that came out around the, almost the same time as this that was produced concurrently that is essentially the same plot as Strength Love called Failsafe. Um, that's a drama. It just it's like it's this movie without the jokes, and <laughs> it's <laughs> Henry Fonda plays the president in that one, and that movie is fucking horrifying. Like there's it's none of this like ironic. I think I read a reference to that when I was reading about <laughs> this movie. Yeah, I've, I've seen Failsafe, and the way it ends is Henry Fonda makes a deal with the premiere in Moscow and says like you guys should try to shoot down this plane that's like coming right for St. Petersburg or something if it makes there I if it makes it there I know you have to retaliate but if you retaliate we have to too and it's the end of the world so if it makes it there I pledge to nuke New York City <laughs> to show you that it wasn't intentional <laughs> and that's how the movie ends with President Henry Fonda ordering the destruction of New York City by nuclear weapons. It's basically the end of the Watchmen. <laughs> right, yeah, <laughs> basically. And like, um, that's just it. I was <laughs> like, oh shit. There's a <laughs> Clancy novel, Some of All Fears, which mm -hmm. is also this story. I don't, I'm aware of it, but I don't know it. Um, like, a stadium gets nuked with okay. 
uh, in the U.S. like during a football game, and uh, there's like all this like intrigue as to like whether or not the Russians actually did because like it definitely was a Russian bomb, but they like don't know if the Russians did it. Okay. So the whole plot is about whether or not the U.S. the U.S. is like going to nu- nuclear retaliate or not. Okay. Um, but it turned out it was like some like separatist group. Like it was the Chechens or something, okay, basically. Sure. Sure. <laughs> yeah, and they didn't blow up Moscow or whatever. Yeah. Okay, that's and good. it's like in that series of movies with the same character that he has. Yeah. Um, yeah. But with um, with Failsafe, it was coming out. It it would it would have come out like just before Strange Love, and so I don't remember all the details, but Kubrick like pulled some like pretty dirty studio tricks to make sure the movie that Failsafe was delayed because it started production ahead of <laughs> Strange Love. <laughs> So that straight line would come out first. And so then... we have like concurrent movie releases just going through <clears throat> the entire history of Hollywood. Yeah, right. It's, it's right. the deep impact in Island. Or... <laughs> exactly. Um, so yeah, this was an early one of those. It's like two virtually identical movies coming out at the same time. Which makes sense that in the early 60s you'd have concerns about nuclear wars. But um, yeah, he, I don't remember all the details, but he did something like pretty slimy to make sure that, that Strange Love came out ahead of Failsafe. And it fucking worked because... Remember this movie, and nobody remembers Failsafe anymore, despite it yeah. also being good. Well, this could still be. Oh no, okay, yeah, yeah. So there we are. Considering like how dominant nuclear power was mm-hmm. in American culture from the fifties to like the late eighties, it's amazing how much it's like slipped off the radar. Like I, I don't feel like I'm seeing like a lot of fiction about like nuclear attacks. You're right, we have different concerns now. Like we because it was so closely tied to the Cold War, right? And like once the Cold War ended, yeah, fear ended. But we still like have all the nukes. So <laughs> Right. I don't feel like we've dealt with this correctly. <laughs> we were no, just, of course we, we just don't have like a strong animosity with another faction that would shoot nukes back at us, yeah. right? I mean yeah. that's we get a little nervous every time Russia does something weird out there, right? Yeah. Like it could flare up again. Yeah, in a sense it kinda has, or maybe the Cold War never ended. Or maybe Russia did win. Who knows? <laughs> but um <laughs> Yeah, you are correct that the, the, our our national fear has shifted to well to terrorism and then and gangs and, well gangs yeah you're right MS-13. gangs then terrorism yeah yeah and which drugs. feels so like low stakes considering the like climate apocalypse and right easy like, nuclear apocalypse we could all go through right well whereas the climate apocalypse like is much more likely to destroy the world than. The nukes and like we're not doing it's like a really it. slow version of that doomsday device in this movie right only we're like ignoring it yeah. aware of it <laughs> and it's preventable yeah but here we are so yeah you, our, our national anxieties have just moved past it yeah um yeah it, it seems like, yeah it seems like so much culture was that but yeah, mm-hmm. yeah it, i mean like it feels like whenever you mention that kind of issue it feels like we're going back to the 80s right mm-hmm. it just it hasn't it didn't leave the 90s i think we still get a few properties every once in a while that talk about it. Like we get like the Fallout games and stuff like that, but those are all like references to the past. Yeah, yeah. and they're like critiquing it as like a source of like kitsch, right? Yeah, because it's like kooky sixties concerns. Yeah, with, right, right. Well, and even like a fifties aesthetic. It's yeah, like, it, it's so much concerned with the past you can't even place it in a modern setting, and have it like be co- coherent. Right, like because I mean, once eighty nine rolls around, the wall comes down. I think we just treated it as a solved problem. Yeah, I mean, we we also get, like, the Terminator movies, which are technically, like, nuclear annihilation, but Mm -hmm. it's more concerned with, like, a robot revolution, which leads to nuclear annihilation. So, I mean, it's similar but different. Right, and and that's more, like, almost a concern with, like, the rise of technology and the alienation that we feel from technology um, than it is with, like you said, like, with nukes specifically. Like, you talk about Watchmen. Like, Watchmen is about nuclear fear. 
Yeah. Right? Like that's what that comic is about. Or an end movie later on. <laughs> well, it's yeah. also about like it's about more than that. Yeah, the yes. form of comics and how it doesn't yeah. make sense. But many, many, many things. Yeah. The nature of superheroes and vigilantism and yeah. fascism. Yeah. Yeah. All all of that. Watchmen's really good. <laughs> Watchmen is good. Watchmen's really good. Um, how does this one stack up to the other uh, Kubrick movies we watched? Let's see. Which other ones did we do? We did was it 2001, The Shining. Yeah, or that you've seen, not just that. We've uh, I also saw Full Metal Jacket. I like this one quite a bit. I like it more than Full Metal Jacket. Um, Full Metal Jacket's a hard watch. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a very challenging movie. I, like my problem busted. with it was just how imbalanced it was because I remember the second half being way weaker than the first half. Well, um, I mean, it's meant to be, be this like very severely bifurcated movie. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. But it's like. <laughs> I liked half of it and not the other half, and that's mm-hmm. kind of a problem when it's a full movie, right? Yes. Um, I mean, 2001, it's going to be, like, one of the most meaningful movies to me, so it's hard to supplant that, but I'd put this, like, right under it. Okay. Not right under it, but, like, under it. No, as number um, two. Yeah, maybe close with The Shining, I think, because The Shining was pretty awesome, too. Yeah, that, that seems pretty... I mean, it's like, you know, pick a, picking a favorite child at a certain point. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, like, I'm, I'm glad that it really stacks up some to, yeah, to the grades. Yeah, but yeah, because it's to the test of time. Yeah, I like this a lot. Mm-hmm. I think it's, I mean, it's the tightest like Kubrick film. I think that's true. Yeah, yeah, because he hadn't gone to the like the slow pace, like indulgent style yet. Right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you compare this to something like Barry. No, that's not true. Spartacus was like four, was it? four hours long. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but he also disavowed Spartacus. Yeah. yeah, it's it's like unwatchable. It's I like always forget of, that hours he... of marching. Yeah. I always forget that he did Spartacus. Well, that's actually. what he wants, so you know, mission accomplished. Because he he yeah. doesn't want to be associated with that movie. Like he got to a point where he just thought it was like a big, bloated studio movie that like he got roped into, and like it's early in his career. And he says, "Oh no, like that was before I it's his found dude. my voice." And yeah, 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 basically, and he's he's not he doesn't want to be associated with it. Um, so yeah, I guess if you forget that, then you're doing what Kubrick <laughs> wants you to do. And that is that is the correct move. Um, but even like you comp- you compare this one to something like Barry Lyndon, like which is you know a big giant period piece with many you know slow scenes about people having conversations in parlor rooms and things like that, you know or like soldiers marching places, like this one yeah feels a lot tighter, a lot more modern. I think that there's like a modern pacing to this movie that a lot of his stuff doesn't indulge in, <laughs> and um, it makes the movie makes it his most watchable movie probably. Like I think that it's yeah, it was like ninety-two minutes or something. Yeah, and, and it moves right along. Yeah, and <clears> some <throat> of that is even like credits, like mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, so closer to ninety, and or yeah. the like bombs going off at the end, right? Which is what a great way to end it. Mm-hmm. I do love yeah. that scene. I'm sure a lot of like Fallout is based on that scene. No, oh, it's yeah, got no, the exact yeah. same vibe as Fallout because it's like nukes blowing up and like a classic fifties, like pop song playing mm-hmm. right it's the exact same vibe as all the fallout games yeah um but since i love the fallout series so much like it was very <laughs> totally familiar ends. to me yeah um but it gives like it gives the ending of the movie a very haunting feeling to me because mm-hmm. you know the subject matter of the song is so perfect because it's like i forget the exact words it's like i'll, I'll see we'll you next time yeah uh i'll see you or we'll see you again yeah, yeah. which is you know, yeah and it has it, it's ironical when played to the the footage of the nukes exploding, it has kind of, the the, the melody of it sounds kind of haunting to me. Mm-hmm. It was very chilling. To, like what I said earlier, though, that. to me, this time around, it felt like a relief, right? Because, like, the horrible society that they're crafting is, like, 
nukeable. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I see it. I see it as like these people are horrible and they deserve to die, but like the rest of humanity shouldn't that's, have to pay for that. Yeah, I think I think that's what's interesting about the movie, right? Because it's like the one thing that's missing here is just the like random person that was like going about their day, and then the world ended. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right. And which is, of course, the lived. I mean, that's going to be the lived reality for most of us when. If the nukes yeah, aside from these like twenty five people, yeah, right, yeah, right, exactly. Where are they planning to get all these babes that they're gonna sleep with in their mind? Mind crap. It's not gonna happen. Yeah, exactly. It's a stupid plan. Yeah, <laughs> Nazis well, that's why they're dumb. dumb. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nazis are fucking stupid. <laughs> uh, it's a small comfort that all of our leaders are dumbasses. <laughs> uh, should we move on to our uh, our closing segment or our next segment? Yeah, sure. Okay, uh, so or I, I forget what our. Hot takes. That's hot what we takes. Call it. Yeah, it's a hot take. So when we when we get to these canonical, these canon level movies, we try to find a hot take, either ideally contemporary with when the movie came out, of someone who didn't like the movie that has perhaps interesting reasons for not liking the movie, and we assign that task to the person who selected the movie in the given week. Uh, Charles, you were telling me off. Line that you had quite an adventure tracking down this article. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, how, did this, uh, so how did you find this? I started my search on Rotten Tomatoes, where there's literally one negative review for Doctor Strange Love. Okay. And I clicked on and read it, and it was a review <clears throat> written in 2014, um, and it was very short, and it basically just said that like the movie was bad and didn't explain why. So I'm like, this wouldn't be very interesting to present. No. But luckily, through my further readings about Dr. Strangelove, I caught many references to a Susan Sontag review of the movie. Um, but I did not immediately find the article. I just thought this would be super interesting to talk about because the excerpt sounded pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, after further digging, I, I found the name of the magazine that was in. It's in the Partisan Review. And thankfully, they have all the issues on some website online. So I like read through this PDF to find it. Um, but yeah, the 1964 uh, like spring issue of the Partisan Review. So this here is, is quite the track that you <laughs> yeah, went exactly. on. Exactly. Like this is the most research I've had to do since college yeah. to find an article. <laughs> it feels usually, like a usually it's right there yeah. on Google. Yeah. Um, but like this was in like image form, so you couldn't like <laughs> you know search the text. Yeah. Okay. So that might have contributed <clears throat> to that. Right, um, so but is... thankfully, many articles reference Susan Sontag's review. She's an interesting. Everything she's ever said, I think, is interesting. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I figured I'd be in for a good time. And she, she compares, so she's talking about, uh, she has a segment about going to the theater in general. So it's like about multiple movies right. uh, in her time. And she has a section about comedy uh, and it's like intersection with politics, right? And so she compares Dr. Strangelove, which had just come out, to uh, Chaplin's The Great Dictator. Which is such a weird comp. Like that is not where my yeah, mind goes. but um, they're both you know political comedy, and so sure. she's going to compare the two. So here's some excerpts. It is impossible to see the dic- and I haven't seen the Great Dictator, so I can't comment on that side of it. It is impossible to see the Great Dictator in 1964 without thinking of the hideous reality behind the movie, and one is depressed by the shallowness of Chaplin's political vision. Though it may well be that in 20 years it will seem as simple as the Great Dictator. If the positive assertions at the close of The Great Dictator seem facile and insulting to its subject, so may the display of negative thinking of Dr. Strangelove soon, if it does not already, seem equally facile. Huh, okay. So, so she's saying that, like, because the movie is such, like, a, a downer. <laughs> which it is. That it's... Wrong. It's wrong? Right. Well, I mean, yeah. her point about The Great Dictator is probably worth considering, at the yeah. very least. Because The Great Dictator famously ends with this speech that 
Kathleen gives that is like to date, I think, quite moving. Yeah, I agree. About like mm -hmm. the, it, it's like the unity speech that modern Democrats want to give but can't because they're yeah. You know, so she she has a long thing. Like I cut, I cut out a lot of that, but she has a long thing about how it seems very naive or like insultingly uplifting compared to what actually happened. Right. Well, I mean, because Great Dictator, Dictator came out in 1940, mm -hmm. so like we didn't know everything about Nazism or the the strength of uh, of the Third Reich at that point, um, at least not the extent of their evil, I should say. And I, maybe that's what she's referencing. But it's it's interesting to like because it's like so dark to not be able to like correctly laugh at it. I don't know. It just feels like the only correct reaction is the Doctor Strange love reaction. It sounds to like me. she finds it's, it implausible. Yeah, I'm, she doesn't but, really explain exactly what she means by the she, negative she, thinking being she's facile. Like living at like the height of the Cold War, right? Or when was this written? Nineteen sixty-four. This is in sixty-four. Yeah. This is right like children that. are going under desks and like. Well, but if there was a reaction to the children going under the desks thing. Is like absurd, right? That, yeah. Like, either it isn't going to make a difference, or that it's it's stupid to think that we're going to nuke each other. Right. Yeah. Is that what she means? I, it must be right. Okay. Okay. Let's continue. There's, there's a lot more. It's great. Um, okay. So she says after that, intellectuals and adolescents both love it, but the 16-year-olds who are lining up to see it understand the film and its real virtues better than the intellectuals who vastly overpraise it. For Dr. Strangelove is not, in fact, a political film at all. It uses the okay targets of left liberals, the defense establishment, Texas, chewing gum, mechanization, American vulgarity, and treats them from an entirely post-political mad magazine point of view. That's, that's not my read on this film. But, but Although yeah. that is very in character for Susan Sontag to, yeah. to think that the average moviegoer is understanding the movie in a truer way than the intellectual is. Like that, that is her critique in against interpretation. Like that, that, yeah. that you're just taking it as it is. And I, I see but, this as a criticism of the substance of the movie where mm -hmm. she's saying that the intellectuals are finding content where there is none, whereas the younger people, like, you know, they just see it for what it is and as, as like a juvenile. Uh, interpretation of what's going on in the world, right? Or, or that it's taking shots at easy targets, which to a certain yeah. point it is. But I think it's the finding the correct targets. Like yeah. I was saying earlier, like this movie is not a movie that punches down. Mm -hmm. Like right. this, this punches up at like those who are in power, which is like that's always the correct direction. And yeah. even, even, even if there's like a simplicity to the comedy, it's like the, the politics seem correct of the film. I, I agree. Yeah. Like, if this movie yeah. had the bad politics, it would do what First Man did, right? Where it, like, has yeah. intercut shots of, like, yeah. protesters about how we're wasting money on the space program when people are starving. Yeah. Right? And it's like, okay, I guess that's who we're going to be making fun of here, right? I and mean, this movie doesn't isn't doing that or anything like that. No. Yeah. Yeah, and if, if anything, it feels like she's, like, defending a punching down sort of... <laughs> 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 or is, is that the correct... She doesn't interpretation offer... that like she would rather see us like I don't know finding the actual dumb person and making fun of them. I don't, <laughs> I'm, I don't know. I'm not sure because she doesn't offer an alternative or it, like what the actual target should be. Maybe she she's just, just like a believer in the system that like she you know trusts the the politics. Yeah, she, well, she's that would be surprising. For I, yeah, she's famously I, contrarian. Yeah. So how I read this is I think. Uh, her view is similar to how we view people who make fun of President Trump these days as being like yeah, the orange fair. man bad kind of criticism. Mm -hmm. Right. I, that's how I read this. this. Yeah, that's that's fair. 
Yeah, I don't think that's what Kubrick's doing, but if that's yeah. what, but you're probably right that that is what she is is. Yeah, one, one could interpret it that way. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's. I th I think what you're saying is correct, though that that's incorrect. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, anyway, two, there's two more sections. Please, here. yes. Uh, the end of Doctor Strange Love, with its matter-of-fact image of apocalypse and flip soundtrack till we meet again, reassures in a curious way. For nihilism is our contemporary form of moral uplift. Doctor Strange Love is nihilism for the masses, a philistine nihilism. I again don't see it as like a nihilistic ending, because like the, the the it seems to be the correct choice. <laughs> like, it doesn't feel nihilistic where it's like, oh, this is like what we're working towards, then yes, this project is bad and should be mm -hmm. destroyed. Right, I mean, yeah. But I mean, really, if everybody dies, like then that's a loss, right? Like, yes. that is, that's, yeah, that's yeah. everybody loses. Like, we, humanity has failed yeah. at that point, clearly. So I, I think I kind of get her point here. If, mm -hmm. we're, if we're talking about how, the, I mean, it's a movie about the end of the world where you're supposed to be laughing at the end. Mm -hmm. Right, and like I can see why that is read as nihilism, mm -hmm. right? And I can also see why nihilism is probably not something we should be embracing, right? Like especially if you sincerely do believe that the end of the world is coming, because if, if nothing matters and the end of the world is coming, then the world is going to end, right? Like you're not going to do anything to stop it. So I, I, I hear her point there. Again, I, I'm not persuaded that that's precisely what the movie is saying. Yeah, but I think it's a not in, like a, a, a not unreasonable read of what's going on. Yeah, here. I mean, I think that there's yeah. a reason that we focus on the set of characters that we focus on. It's because mm -hmm. like, like this, these people are particularly bad mm -hmm. and do deserve the the destruction that they get. Oh, oh and yeah. it's their fault. Yes. Yeah, like mm -hmm. not particularly culpable. Yeah. To, yeah. To be more precise about it. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I could see the movie being interpreted as like nihilistic because it. Just like destroys the world and says like, ha, ha, ha. Like, right? Hey, yeah, that's yeah. kind of. Although she like, she yeah. kind of goes back to the criticism of this movie being too simplistic or juvenile. Yeah, but nihil nihil there's an important part of nihilistic nihilism to me that where it's like there's a sort of like lack of belief, um, or belief in the destruction of things, and I don't think that this is what this movie's advocating for. No, I mean, because part yeah. of satire in general is actually gets back to a very sincere concern about the world and about people. Yeah. Right? Like, you're not going to bother satirizing something if you truly don't give a shit. Mm -hmm. Right? You're just going to mock it. And this this isn't mockery. Like, right? it would be more nihilistic to me if they, like, stopped the bombs. Sure. Like, <laughs> like I, I feel like that would be like, oh, yeah, just, like, Moving on with our lives, we like solved we, it. Yeah, we solved it. We don't need to like come back to this, right? Because yeah. I mean, why would Kubrick bother inspiring absurdity or terror or awe or horror or anything if it doesn't matter, right? And like that—that is what this movie is meant to evoke, right? Like he wants the audience to feel something, and he wants the audience to feel something for a reason. Mm -hmm. And if there is no reason for life, if if, there, if nothing has a purpose, like why would you do that, right? I think. Yeah, interesting. What, how does she uh, close out? Yeah, the last bit here, she says, Dr. Strangelove fails most obviously in scale. Much, though not all, of its comedy seems to me repetitive, juvenile, ham-handed. <laughs> and when comedy fails, seriousness begins to leak back in. One begins to ask serious questions about the misanthropy, which is the only perspective from which the topic, which is the only perspective from which the topic of mass annihilation is comic. 
it, it feels like she's like a true believer in like the the technocrat. Maybe. Like I, I like, guess that would be surprising, but but maybe. It would be surprising coming from her. It <laughs> yeah. would be surprising. But like I can't fathom any other Right. Because like e- Ebert wrote a review of this movie for like the fortieth anniversary or something that I that mm-hmm. I read prior to our recording today. And he talks about how like the the reason comedy works isn't like a silly person doing something silly, right? Like that's just silliness. It's when a serious person doesn't realize that they're silly, <laughs> right? And like that is what this movie is. It's these people yeah. who think that they're they're the serious ones that they're doing it all correctly and are in fact absurd. Yeah, yeah. And I I think part of the issue with comedy that you were pointing to, or like our current comedy, where it's like oh the orange guy is like, yeah. what that style of comedy is not funnier than what is just the thing yeah <laughs> like like the thing is like more funnier than the reactive <laughs> comedy to it in a way which like kind of mellows it or mediates it mm-hmm. and it makes it easier to like point at and say like ah, <laughs> like i don't need to like take that seriously right. whereas like if you just take the the thing that's happening as this movie does and just sort of like show it that's really where the comedy comes from, because the the sheer monstrousness of the the sort of like circle of leaders that we have at the uh, at the center of the film is comical because it's just real conversations that they might have. Right, and yeah. that that may be why this movie has stood up better than Failsafe has. Failsafe, I think, is still a perfectly competently made movie. I mean, Henry Fonda is good in it, but Henry Fonda is like Jed Bartlett, right? Like he, he reads us just like this paragon of liberal virtue. Mm-hmm. And what we have seen is that the presidents of this era aren't that at all, right? Like I, I, I imagine that this movie became much more coherent after Watergate, right? Like once we started seeing just how absurd our leaders were. We're in the Reagan era when you get like the truly, the first like truly dumb leader. Yeah, uh, yeah, because <laughs> Nixon wasn't dumb, he was just evil. Yeah. But like Reagan was both. He was very dumb, very yeah. evil. And the Russian leaders at the time are very dumb. Yeah. So you have like the dumbest people in control. Mm-hmm. And that's what it feels like this is pointing to. Yeah. And yeah. It, and then that has stayed true since really. Like, I don't know. Right? Do you how what's your reaction to it, Charles? <laughs> um Yeah, I mean it seemed like kind of a peek behind the veil, right? And that made it all the more terrifying. Yeah, that these are the people in control of, you know, essentially the existence of the human race. Yeah, and they're just motivated by their dicks. Yeah, right? and yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a it's a really scary thought, right? Because it's because it's true. That's why yeah. it's scary. Yeah, that's so, why it's scary. Yeah, yeah. if it wasn't it, it's, truth, it's in many ways it is reality. Yeah, and remains reality. If if anything, it's more true now. Yeah, yeah, yeah especially if yeah if you if you read like just like the transcripts of like the conversations that they have in the White House now, if they're true, are kind of like equally as funny because they're so dumb. Yeah, I mean, like, you, can, you can just read the, like the Nixon tape. The Nixon tape, yeah, great just example. As, just as stupid, right? Just total madness. Yeah, yeah. just complaining about the dumbest shit. Like he, he goes on and on about like all in the family. There's a, there's a bit where he's just like complaining about a sitcom for a long time. That's like, why? Why is why are you watching this? So then you imagine them reading this like in court, right? Right. Yeah. Or, like this was transcribed and like submitted to Congress, right? Like that. It's like, okay. Yeah. Whereas like showing them as like a serious evil person, almost like 
again, like mediates them. Mm-hmm. Like if they're not shown to be buffoonish, it's like it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense. It's not like the reality that we live in. Yeah. Yeah, because I mean, again, so because the movie's about the system working, right? It's it's this, this not a flaw. Right? Yeah. Like the, the Russia getting bombed here, and this is not it's not the system working how it shouldn't be working. This is like things basically running without a hitch, and this is the result. Yeah. Right. That's yeah, that's what, like I can never take seriously like the people that like truly, like the true believers, the ones that are like, the press will save us, the Constitution will save us, like right. well, all the, those things. Yeah. Like as if there's some sort of like magic to they're not self these institutions. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and the inverse of that is the conspiracy theorists, right? The people that think that there's so much competence that they're able to execute evilness. Via that incompetence, yeah, like, yeah. No, like that, the inverse of that, is and to, and to see the like, competence in the system is like even more alarming. Right? Yeah. That's like the true madness of a conspiracy theorist, right? Yeah. That they that they ascribe it, way too much intelligence and, and planning and forethought and everything to the people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, that's really dark. That's yeah. That's all super grim. So and that's why it's so funny. That's why it's so funny. Yeah. Um, any closing thoughts on? And Strange Love or Santag? <laughs> I, yeah, I'd be interested to like see the full article. I can and see like there. what else she goes. I guess I would have to like watch the entirety of The Great Dictator, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. that might be worthwhile. Like, yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard good things. I've, I've seen the end of it because it's like very moving. Yeah, that yeah, that's on YouTube. And yeah, it's it's very good. The full movie is probably on YouTube because I'm sure it's not copyright. Nineteen forty, it's like falling out of copyright. So nineteen forty. Mm-hmm. Well, um, a lot of his stuff is so possibly. Um, but yeah, I still think that yeah, I think this movie holds up. Always, yeah. always concerned comedies are not going to hold up, and but I think this one does very well. Yep, no concerns so. anymore for this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah thumbs up here. Like, trusting Kubrick. Yeah. Any last thoughts, Charles? Uh, I mean, same thoughts as you guys had, right? Okay. Still holds up. It's great. Good. Glad to hear. Good pick. Yeah, especially yeah. for like a first time viewing, like now in today's context, like it still holds up. It's yeah. great. Yeah, cool. Well, Crossman, you're up next. So, yeah. what movie have you managed to avoid that we're not going to watch? Um, so, I never got around to seeing uh, The Master, the 2012 Philip Seymour Hoffman film. One, one of my all time yeah. favorites. Paul Thomas Anderson. Yeah. Yeah. So, we're The Master. Okay, it's super weird. It's super weird and doesn't always make a lot of sense. All right. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. Um, if you're liking the show, please share it. We're, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, we're on SoundCloud, we're on iTunes, wherever podcasts are to be found. We'll make sure that we get there. Um, we appreciate your comments, questions, concerns, um, and all shares and likes. So please send them our way. Um, it really does make a difference. Um, and we'll see you next week for The Master.